0: I can only tell the young people today that are looking to go to med school and be doctors the following. For me, it has been the most fulfilling career. I've been very successful monetarily. The community has respect for me. And I have to be honest with you, I don't have a big ego. I don't need the, the respect. I just enjoy the friendship. I enjoy the love. But I really enjoy the trust that they put in me. And I like taking care of people. And I like seeing people... Be okay. This is Professional Confessionals.
1: We're joined today by surgeon Robert J. Raniolo. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Let's dive right in. Tell us about your path to the present moment. Where did you go to college? What did you plan to pursue? And at what point did you decide to become a general surgeon?
0: Well, there's a whole lot to talk about there, to be honest with you. Let me tell you, I'm born and raised in Tarrytown, New York. I've been there my whole life. I have never wanted anything more in my life, regardless of where I was in in terms of education, but to always come home and and live there. And fortunately, I have been able to do that. In terms of wanting to be a doctor, you know, my story is a little unique. We were uh, two boys and a girl. I'm the oldest. I was 12, my brother was 10, and my sister was six years old. And she was unfortunately afflicted with uh, leukemia at the age of six. And unfortunately, despite all of my father's efforts, um, she passed about nine months later. For my father and for my mother, that was a very devastating point in their lives and something that probably took more than 20 years even to learn how to cope with. But people cope with things in different ways at different times, and one of the ways I think my father did was is that he insisted that both my brother and I would be physicians, and we would be physicians, and we would take care of people, because if we did, then maybe my sister's life would not have totally been in vain. So we had no choice about what we were doing and who we were going to be from the ages of 12 for myself and 10 for my brother we were told you're going to be a doctor. And wherever we were in school and whatever grade we were in, whether we were in the Catholic schools and the nuns would have you stand up and introduce yourself and say, you know, what are you going to do with your life? Or whether it was in high school, I, my brother and I would both get up and say, you know, we're going to be doctors. Uh, So we went through high school and, um, High school, again, it was a local place. These were people I had grown up with. Uh, I was in a community, really, where my grandparents had immigrated there. Poor, lived in the poor section of town, Uh, did everything they could to just make sure that there was food on the table and offer their their children an opportunity. So my parents were really first-generation Americans who also worked very hard, and education was paramount. And then when my father was really uh, bent on us being physicians that became extremely amplified. But despite that, I I was still just a local kid in the local high school doing all the things that the kids in high school do. And one of the rewarding things about that in the end was that I have a very large private general surgical practice. And it's mostly local people or people who come now just because they know someone who knows me, or maybe my reputation has grown a bit in the 40 years I've been in the business. But the reason why the practice is so large is because they trust me. I was back behind the high school doing the same things that they were doing. And it it seems easy for them to come to the office and talk to me openly about whatever they want to talk to me about. And then trust me with the arena that I operate in on a regular basis with them being my patients but because there is such a trust there uh, the practice is it's flourished not only just my contemporaries but even the older population in town you know they knew my grandparents if they're still alive patient people now in their 90s who are my patients uh, people who were friends with my parents uh, and my parents and my grandparents were good people and they trusted and loved them and so they come to me with the same trust and i have to tell you that has been probably one of the most powerful and spectacular gifts that i have ever been given in my life so anyway i went to high school uh, locally and then you know you become a, an 18 year old or probably today you become an 18 year old at the age of 14 but nonetheless uh I went to college, and, of course, I went to pre-med. And I found myself really not very different than the other kids in college, and I wanted to have a good time, and I wanted to party, and um, I did. And so I I spent four years in a pre-med program. I was gifted in the sense that I, I didn't really have to study a lot. I could always do well on the exams, but I didn't have to spend a lot of time doing it. So I had a lot of free time to spend with my friends who were in the business school or the finance school and doing things I probably shouldn't have been doing at that time, but I don't regret any of it. But nonetheless, you arrive at graduation time in college, and uh, I had a three five, which is it's an, it's an okay GPA. It's not great. Uh, I had fair board scores. I mean, they were good, but they weren't at the top. And back then in 1973, uh, or oh no, it was 77, I finished college. If you really wanted to go to medical school, you had to have a GPA close to 4.0. I mean, it was a three seven was a minimum. You needed very high board scores. I didn't have any of that. I was just a little below that level. And so, of course, my father came to me because he was always telling me what I had to do. And he said, well, he says, you know, you're going to go to grad school next year and you'll um, work a little harder and you'll do better in your GPA and you will reapply to med school next year, son, he says to me. And I said, "Okay, dad. And then some friends of mine called me and they were actually in foreign med school. They were in Guadalajara, Mexico, and I had known them. They were a couple of years older than me in college. And they said, you know, Robert, what are you doing with yourself? And I said, well, I, you know, I'm I've been on, I'm on a couple of wait lists, but I haven't gotten into med school yet. I'm going to do a year of grad work. And um, they said, you know, you ought to come down to Mexico because we're having a great time down here. And I had that side to me. There was no question about it. And so I went to my dad and I said, you know, dad, instead of going to grad school, what would you think about me enrolling in a foreign medical school And I would reapply at the end of each year and transfer back from a foreign med school. And I thought that it might even be easier to get back than doing the grad school route. Well, my father would have paid for anything that had to do with education and anything that had to do with being a doctor. So the next thing I knew, I I was living in Guadalajara, Mexico. And that was an extremely unique experience for me. It was probably the first time I was away from home. I went to college and I I lived at home and commuted to the Bronx. I went to Fordham and I found myself in this absolutely fabulous country with fabulous weather and unbelievable freedom and my parents' checkbooks and credit cards. And I learned very quickly that I could, um, I could spend money and I really didn't know what I was spending it on at times. And I actually spent the next couple of years really appreciating Mexico, the country, the people, Central America, with wonderful experiences. Uh, And although I was supposed to be there to go to med school, I was was in med school, but like I said, I I could always do well without studying much. And I wasn't really, I don't know if my heart was truly there, but I was having such a good time in this foreign country. And I think I matured tremendously on a different level. And I can still remember the day I walked out of my townhouse and my cousin Richard, who I lived with, who was just like me. Um, we sat there. We looked at each other. We had pretty much done everything you'd want to do as a young man. I mean, we traveled. We partied. We met people. We'd been places. And uh, he, I said to him, uh, Richard, um, what do you want to do with your life? I mean, do we want to just—what this? What are we going to do? This is going to end— at some point. And he said, I don't know. He said, you know, I've been thinking about the same thing. And I said to him, you know, Rich, maybe we should be doctors. I mean, you know, dad said we should be a doctor. Maybe we should be doctors. I mean, we're in med school. And he said, you know, Robert, I was pretty much thinking the same thing. And so what happened at that point in time is, is I had completed my first couple of years of med school there. And so I took six months off and you had to pass these horrendous tests to come home. But what I found was, is that If I could do well not studying, and now I wanted to study because it's what I wanted to do, well, God, it was pretty easy for my cousin and I to do extremely well on those exams. And before we knew it, we were foreign med grad transfers into the American system there were different programs that allowed this sort of transfer back at the time. And uh, mine was sort of a fifth pathway type program. It was like an extra year that you would do. And I had landed in one of the uh, American medical schools. I was certainly not having as much fun in that school as I was having in Guadalajara, Mexico, I could tell you that. But nonetheless, I, I had had such a good time and for so long that it, it was sort of time to move on. And so I finished, you know, those couple of years in med school which are really clinical years you know the first two years are really the book years the last two years are your clinical experiences and it's kind of where you figure out where in medicine do you belong and a lot of what you do in medicine later has a lot to do with the experience that you have in those clinical years with people around you and for me it just seemed that every time I was in surgery I had wonderful people around me that made me feel good. And I liked being with them and I liked what they were doing. And so it was more fun than it was work. And so the choice was pretty easy for me to say, listen, um, I'm uh, I'm looking for a surgical residency. I'm going to be a surgeon. Being a foreign med grad initially, when you do a couple of years in a foreign med grad, it's not always so easy to make your way into these higher-end residency programs. But I had this fifth year that I had an opportunity to meet a lot more people. And I remember I was at a hospital whose name has changed today, but I was at Misericordia Hospital in the Bronx back in 1981 as a fifth pathway student. That's an extra year before you do a residency. And I met a man there named Benedict Reynolds, who was the chief of surgery, and I admired him. And there must have been something in me that he liked during the three months that I spent on his service. And I'll still remember that last week, he said to me, Raniola, what are you doing with the rest of your life? And I says, I'm going to be a surgeon, Dr. Reynolds. And he said, you know, Bob, you spent a couple of years in foreign med school, it's not like you're going to match to be a surgeon. And I says, I'm going to be a surgeon, Dr. Reynolds. So he said, you know, Bob, why don't you stop by my office later today and we'll chat about things. So I ended up in his office later that afternoon and he reiterated the position that I was in. He said, but you know, Bob, he said, let me tell you how the program works here. He says, we take 16 first year surgical residents and are eight are gone for the second year, four more gone for the third year, one more is gone for the fourth. And we graduate three chief residents at the end of five years. He says, and 14 of those kids will come here next year through the match. He says, but Dr. Stahl and I, who are the chairmen of the program, each have an opportunity to offer an individual an opportunity outside of the match. He says, and I was very impressed with you as a Fifth Pathway student, and I want to offer you my choice for next year. It was, I was ecstatic that I, I had an opportunity like that. And in a second, he called the secretary, in. before I knew it, I had a contract in front of me, all within this 30 minutes that I was there, and I signed a contract to be a PGY-1, or first-year surgical graduate, a first-year surgical resident in the Lincoln Misericordia program. And so I started the following year, and I'll never forget what he said to me when I walked out of the office that day. He said, you know, Bob... I've opened the door for you, but only you can close it. And I never forgot that. Anyway, I started in that program and the way it worked in the program, because it was a pyramid, you had to make it from one year to the next and not be in the cut. You had to make the cut. So the cut had two things that you had to do. One, you had to be voted in by the attendings and your peer, your senior peers, and you had to do good on the in-service exam at the end of each year. Well, the exam was never a problem for me because I always had a knack of taking exams. Whether I was really very familiar with the material or not, I could answer the questions and usually do well. It's just that God gives different people different gifts. So the exam was never an issue. I was always up in the 90th percentile. And because I had had such a good time in my life already, when I got there, I was really enjoying the practice of surgery. And so what happens is is that when you're a first year and a second year and a third year, there's a lot of work you do. We call it scut work. And so you need to run around and make sure everything's okay, see all the patients, check all the lab. But the fun is actually occurring in the operating room with the senior residents, the, the residents who are already in their fourth and fifth year. And Lincoln is a level one trauma center. And so we were seeing three penetrating traumas a night there. So three gunshots or stabbings. And uh, you'd be in an operating room all night, or at least a senior residence would be. Well, I always wanted to be in the operating room because that's what I was enjoying. But the difference was is that the junior residents would make sure they got all their work done so that they could get to bed by three or four o'clock and get an hour or two of sleep before the next day started, where I was up all night with the senior residents in the Operating room, when they finally wanted to go to bed or were able to go to bed, I still had to do all the work that I hadn't done because I spent the time in the operating room. And so I never slept for those five years that I was in that program. Unfortunately, I had the energy to deal with that. But how that served me so well was that every time at the end of the year when they decided who was staying and who was going, the senior residents, the fourth and fifth years, have a lot to say. So I was spending all the nights with them. And so I had the exam grades, and they would say, Raniola, Raniola, Raniolo. And I went from one to two to three. And before you know it, I graduated uh, as the chief resident in the fifth year in 1988. Very naively, um, I went back to the local hospital in Tarrytown, which is Phelps Memorial Hospital, I walked into the door and went to the medical staff office and I said to the young lady sitting there, I'll never forget her, her name was Ev, and uh, I said, ma'am, I uh, would like an application to practice surgery at the hospital. And she chuckled a little bit and she looked at me and she says, well, are you here to see anybody in particular? Are you joining any particular surgeon? And I said, no and my, do I have to and she said no you don't have to so she had me take a seat and I, I got a seat and she called the powers to be to come downstairs to meet this boy who was asking for an application to practice surgery in the local hospital and I'll never forget, these. the two senior surgeons come down, John Edelstein, Martin Everhard, they were the chiefs, and with the scrubs on and, and the cap, and they introduced themselves. And I, I told them just what I told her. I'm not really sure what they thought about all that. But they said, well, welcome, Bob. We'll get you an application. And, um, I really didn't meet a lot of resistance. I went through a couple of different committees. I had the credentials. And before you know it, I was the youngest general surgeon on staff at Phelps Hospital. Uh, I believe there were eight or nine other general surgeons at the time. And, um, you have to build a practice now. Uh, I walked into the local bank where my mother had worked as a a young woman before she got married, and the bank president knew my mother from a long time ago, and I introduced myself, and and he said, oh, you're Rose's son, and I said, yes, you're the doctor. I said, yes. I said, I'm going to start down at the hospital, but I might need a loan to get going. Anyway, I walked out. He gave me a $100,000 line of credit on a handshake just based on... Uh, his relationship uh, with my mother when my mother worked in the bank years before. And I spent 75000 of that $100,000 in the first year establishing an office of practice, malpractice. And I really, you don't have any patients in the beginning. You pick up a few through the emergency room. So I would spend the days looking over the shoulders of the senior guys operating in the hospital and then I think initially they, they must have said, God, you know, what's this kid want here? But I was very interested like I had been since I had left my days in Guadalajara, Mexico. And after a while, it was like, well, listen, Bob, Marty's got to run over to the office. Would you like to scrub in? Scrub in? My God. Oh, my God, of course. So you run out, you wash your hands, and next thing you know, you're at the table. You're just the assistant, but it it fabulous feeling. And so that relationship grew and between 1988 when I got there to 1994, I practiced by myself. I covered everybody, any call, anything anybody wanted me to take care of for them, I would take care of them. I worked 24-7 for six years. I never took a day off. And because so many people knew me in town and knew my parents and my grandparents, patients began to come. And before you know it, it I, had a, I had a really nice practice in a relatively short period of time. And then in 1994, these two senior guys who really had the whole ball of wax, one decided that at the age of 60, he was going to retire prematurely because he wanted to enjoy other things in life. And the other partner turned to me one day and said, so kid, what do you want to do? And I said, what do you mean, what do you want to do? He said, do you want to be a partner or not? All of a sudden, I I was now a partner, with the senior surgeon at the hospital after being there for six years and how could you have it any better? I already had the clientele, plus he had his clientele and then I, ha- I got to spend six years at a table every day with an absolutely fabulous surgeon, mentor, father, best friend. I mean, there were just so many things that Jonathan was to me. Uh, and so I had a wonderful time from 94 to 2000. And then one afternoon on a Friday, you know, John was, I was on call for the weekend. And he said, Bob, I'll be biking around the lakes this weekend. He says, if you need me, give me a call. And John had a heart attack while riding his bike Saturday morning and was dead on the spot. And I found myself in that year with my practice, John's practice, all by myself. I mean there were other surgeons there, but there was nobody that I had that relationship, nor did I have the respect for as I had for John, nor had any of them had what I thought John's level of expertise was. And what was I gonna do with all this? I had this overnight now I have the double practice, but I don't have Jonathan anymore. And so anyway, I did what I did in the beginning. I just put my head down and I worked again twenty-four-seven for a whole year. I interviewed twenty-five surgeons that year to join me. And the gentleman who works with me today, Dr. Lou, was the 25th interviewee who, for some reason, I thought was the fella. And it turned out he was. He's been with me now for 20 years. And the beauty about it was, remember, I came from the trauma center in the 80s where we were doing all open trauma surgery. This gentleman came with this flair for minimally invasive laparoscopic approach to the surgical problems, and I still can remember teasing him. He'd say to me, "You know, why? Are you, let's do some of these cases with a camera." And I'd say, "Come on, give me a break, would you?" And so he would start to do a few of them, and I'd watch. And of course, I give him a hard time now and then, until I realized that hey, um, there's something to it. And so he he, he was not a, a profess; he was not a resident trained laparoscopist. He was a self-trained laparoscopist. And he just had the natural, like I had the knack to take the tests. Well, he had the knack to do these procedures with a camera. And so the practice just it exploded between 2000 uh, right up until more recently where we could only, we could offer not just traditional open surgery, but we can offer this laparoscopic minimally invasive expertise that we were actually growing. And The practice just grew exponentially, and it could not have been a better run for me or for him in the past 20 years than it has been. And he is still in the practice. The problem is, um, as medicine has evolved, um, there are other changes, unfortunately, that have occurred that make medicine a little less attractive than the way I had initially discovered it and have enjoyed it for so many years. And we'll chat a little bit about that if you want. But I've had an absolutely spectacular career in life since the day I went to high school. I mean, it couldn't be any better. Now, unfortunately, there are a lot of downsides. There are some downsides to things in life, just like their upsides. So what are the downsides? Well, If you're going to work 24-7, I am married and I do have three kids, um, you're not home if you really want to be committed. And so if you're not home, it's okay if you have somebody there that understands what you're doing and is your partner and is willing to sort of pick up the other end of it. And so I married my high school sweetheart. I met my wife when we were in high school and we have been together since. And she allowed me to pursue the career I pursued and the success that I achieved, and she took care of my family for me. Um, She raised them in my absence. I was there, but I, I was in and out a lot. I was never there during the day, and at night I was out cold often. So she would be mom, dad, and everything else that she needed to be to bring the kids along but the problem with that is is that it's wonderful that it works that way sometimes but you know kids are not always entirely forgiving and um my children are not doctors today and the main reason they're not doctors is that they've told me repeatedly dad we would never be a doctor we wouldn't want your life you were never home you never i never went to a single baseball game for any of my children now Things are different today, and um, today um, there are more women in medicine. They want to have a family life, and they want to be physicians. And I, I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, you have to look at the cloth that I'm cut from. I'm, I'm cut from a cloth where if you're a physician, you are 100% committed to be a physician, and unfortunately, your family is position number two. I'm not saying that that's fair for everybody, but that's the way I have always viewed the profession. So the profession now has changed in the sense that we have a lot of people that come who I say they want to do it on a part-time basis and they're very bright people and some of them are very good physicians. But you know, it's uh, it's just not what I would have expected nor the kind of physician that I have been all of my life. Furthermore, what has changed very much in the profession today is, is that I've always been in private practice so I've worked for myself. I've never had to an answer to anyone. I built the practice, I take care of the patients, I offer them what I want to offer them, I use the consultants I want to use, I'm very particular about where I send my patients. But nonetheless, having said that, what has occurred is is that the industry today is infiltrated by large corporations, and these corporations have medical names to them, they're they're big hospital centers that have now gone around and, and they're buying up all of the small hospitals and all of the physicians, and they employ you. Well, you know, you would think that that probably sounds wonderful in a world where maybe I want to split my time between my family and my profession, and so maybe being employed is not so bad, and I can get a lot of the administrative stuff off my plate, and I won't have to worry about money, and I'll get a check, and all that, those are definitely the perks of that system, but at the same thing, at the same time, you have to remember that when what do corporations do best? I mean, they thrive and they make money, and so they begin. They have begun to run medicine like a business now, and I have a very hard time with that. It's now healthcare for money. No, not saying it's bad healthcare. Some is bad, some is good, but it's always been that way. But this is healthcare for money, and so what does that mean? It means that it, if you are working for the man, then. The bottom line is is you do what you're told because if you don't, you don't have a job for long. So how bad could it be to be told? Well, if I'm told that I have to use certain materials in an operating room and I know that there are other better materials, I have a hard time with that. If I'm told that I have to use the consultants that belong to the system that I'm employed in and I know that there are better consultants to take care of my patients elsewhere... I have a hard time with that. If I know that being available in an emergency room setting is important, you know, at a particular level, and we're going to dilute this now with physician extenders who act, who behave and and, and are doing things that I think physicians ought to be there doing, I have a hard time with all that. Now, one of two things, I'm either an old bird who can't adapt or... Um, Maybe I'm right and the system isn't as good as it was. I don't know. I think only time will tell. I can only tell the young people today that are looking to go to med school and be doctors the following. For me, it has been the most fulfilling career. I've been very successful monetarily. The community has respect for me and I have to be honest with you, I don't have a big ego. I don't need the the respect. I just enjoy the friendship, I enjoy the love, but I really enjoy the trust that they put in me. And I like taking care of people, and I like seeing people be okay. One of the hardest things to do as a physician that God has helped me be is, you know, we help everybody, but some people are going to die. And the way I have seen it in the profession is is dying is a very difficult thing for patients and for family. And the way it seems to be... Often, not always, but often, because there are some very gifted, lovely people in medicine. But often, when somebody is dying, a lot of people will not pay as much attention to you as when you were living and had a chance to live. It's almost like if you're a surgeon and you're operating on cancer patients. Well, you operate on cancer patients, but then you know when cancer patients ultimately don't do well, later down the line, chemo's not working anymore and they're dying, you know, many surgeons don't go back and see those cancer patients. I have always found that people who are dying really need you more than than they needed you when they had a chance to live. They feel, even family and friends, it, people are uncomfortable around that death thing, And so people tend to stay away or come for short periods of time or have reasons why they don't need to bump into you as much. But I have found that the look on those patients' face, even on their deathbed, to see me, they were so thankful that I came. They clearly understood at that point that I didn't have anything to offer them in terms of hope that they would be better. But they just were not disappointed that I hadn't showed up. And I have found that so rewarding that somebody has given me that ability to go there. It has not been easy at times, but to go there and and see the family around the patient and and see the patient knowing that I'm here. I might not be able to help you, but I'm here. Uh, It's been tremendous. If you're passionate about what you do, it doesn't matter what you do. You'll always do it well. And my father would, whatever we were in our home, you had to be the best. It didn't matter if you weren't going to be a doctor and you were going to be a sanitation worker. You better be the best sanitation worker on the truck. I mean, that was just the family I came from. My mom was pretty much like my wife, my My mom had an opportunity to stay home and raise the family. My father was a bricklayer, son of an immigrant stonecutter. I was a concrete mason in high school and college, making a lot of money. So we were average working people. But it didn't matter. I, I was so fortunate to have a father who was... You know, the funny thing about it is as you grow up, you really it takes time to realize what you have around you. My father was a very strict man who demanded excellence. Education was paramount. And I was a wild, regular kid toward the end of high school and all through college in the first two years in, in medical school. And he knew it. He never abandoned me, but he was, uh, at least I never thought he was my friend. I didn't really like my father probably till I was 30 years old because my father was on me. He was He somehow knew everything there was to know about what his son was up to and what he did. So he knew the boy I was. Truth of the matter is, I was really no different than the boy he was. It was a wild boy himself who, at the age of 17, left home, joined the Navy, and hit the beach in Okinawa, and actually uh, was involved in a lot of combat and killed a number of people. I can still remember my father saying all his life that the reason his daughter died was because that was a price that he had to pay for the lives that he took in the war. So, you know, we all mature over time and we change. But the point is, is that the man who I didn't want to be in the room with him at times because he had my number when I was young. In the end, he was really my best friend. There was no question about it.
1: Let's go back to your youth for a moment. Mm -hmm. Did you ever consider a different career?
0: You know, as, a, as a, a child, I don't think you really consider a career till you're probably approaching high school. And today, the way I see it, I don't even think these kids in college really know what they want to do. But probably back in my time, when as you were getting into high school and as high school was coming to a close, your junior and senior year, I think that you know, you started to think about what you want to do with your life. Well, I come from a family of... Masons, we're all in the construction business. My uncles have children. Everybody seems to stay in the business. My, if it weren't for my father, I think I probably would have been a mason. I may not have just worked for someone else. I think I'd probably be one of the big-time contractors that some of my nephews are today. The funny thing is, is that uh, these are my nephews are uh, never went to college Um Very successful financially, run big construction companies, big time New York City contractors, heavy and highway people. And on Sunday, they drink beer and watch football, and I'm reading journals and running down the hospital to see patients. You know, sometimes you wonder, you know, did I make the right choice? If it weren't for my dad, I probably would have been one of those contractors.
1: What qualities or attributes do you think are necessary to work and thrive in this field?
0: In the field of medicine, we're talking yes. about. Well, I don't think it it, it requires a few basic things. I, I don't, and I think everyone, most of us, has the potential. The first thing is you have to want to be a doctor. So, w- what's a doctor? Well, the doctor is somebody that takes care of people when they're not well. And so, if that's what you want to do, I, there's no reason why you can't do it. So, it has to be a desire. Uh, it's not even so much a gift. It's more, how do you feel about people around you? Do you like them? Do you want to help them? Does it make you feel good to help them? Uh, That's really, that's the basis right there. After you get past the basic desire to want to provide that in society, I, I think, you know, you have to, one, are you willing to work hard enough to get it? Because it's a, it's a lot of school, right? You go after high school, you do four years of pre-med, then you do four years of med school, and then you do a year of internship, and then you do a residency, which is sort of an apprenticeship. That's another five or six years. And then today, you know, some people are doing fellowships, which are sort of focused specialty years. And you could spend another one, two, three more years on, on top of that, that training program. So are you willing to work very hard for a very long time Time to find yourself in the position to provide that special thing, we'll call it a thing. It comes from, has to come from your heart. You have to want to be an expert in what you do. Because if that's what you want to do for people, I can't imagine you don't want to be the best one doing it. Not that there are not others that are as good as you, but you don't want to just be lackadaisical about being in the medical profession. So, one, you have to have the desire to want to be that kind of person. Two, you have to be willing to understand that the commitment is tremendous in terms of time. Three, financially, financially. it's very expensive to be a doctor today. I was fortunate, even coming from the family I came from, I didn't have a lot of big loans. My parents would have hocked anything to pay for me. But what are you looking at today? Well, college is not inexpensive. An average private college is probably fifty, sixty thousand dollars 60000 a year. If you're smart enough to be at the top of your class and get into a state school, it's still $25,000, $30,000 a year. Then you go to med school. Med school with everything today, tuition, room, board, books, it's $100,000 a year. And now you find yourself after eight years of school, you don't have a job, you still need a training program. You haven't made a dime and you could owe at least a half a million dollars unless you've come from a family and you're lucky that you know they had money to pay for you. And then you have to do your training program where you're actually paid the least you'll ever be paid in your life. Got back for me in the '80s, we were paid nineteen, twenty thousand dollars a year. I think today it's probably more like fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year. But nonetheless, you can't live very well on that money, and so you work hard, and you really can't pay your loans. So your loans are deferred till your training program's over, and then you step into the world of medicine, and today. I don't really see the corporations paying what I think they ought to pay these young physicians. And I'm not so sure that all these young physicians actually have the opportunity that I had to put their head down, work hard, do the right thing, and make money. And so it concerns me that the profession that I think demands the best of the best is not rewarding those individuals who choose that path And because of that, I fear the system will suffer. We're in the greatest country in the world. We have, the country has money. We have wonderful technology. I mean, just to see the changes in medicine that I have seen, I mean, we're already, you know, there's robots in the operating room now. They're not quite doing what you think they're doing. I mean, robots are run by us. But I will tell you that there will be a day where you'll lay on a table. A scanner will scan you. The software will process the information and a robot will do the procedure. There will be no surgeon backing the robot up. It's clear it's coming. So the advances are unbelievable. But you must have the physicians and the healthcare team in order to be able to navigate that system. And I fear that where the system appears to be heading is not going to attract the best of the best that we need to navigate our healthcare system. And that, that's my biggest concern as I look in the future. I can only hope that the new people coming in are smart enough to see what we've seen, what, what we should have stopped a long time ago, but we didn't. It's now evolved. And I'm hoping that they'll be able to change medicine again as it has changed now, but for the better and not for what I perceive as not being as good as it was.
1: How do you think your profession has changed you?
0: Well, you know, change comes from different things. I think aging is probably most responsible for your change. I can still remember being a a tough kid. I'm a softer person now today. I don't really know why. I think it's age. But I think what you're really asking me is, how has medicine changed me as a person? I have to say, for myself, I really don't think it has changed me very much. I think that time has allowed me to mature the way all of us are supposed to mature. I think medicine has just been a vehicle to bring out in me what has always been inside. And it's really just the the love to give and, and be with people and feel that thank you from them. They don't have to even say thank you. You could, you could read it on, on their faces. I just think that the profession has allowed that to evolve in me. I, I think that's been there my whole life.
1: Do you generally like the people that you work with, those that have been attracted to the field that work alongside you as colleagues?
0: Oh, there's no question about it. First off, I'm a very outspoken person. If I don't like you and I don't think you're doing the right thing, you definitely don't want me around you. I can promise you that. So I surround myself with who I have people who, and physicians and healthcare care workers uh, who I have a lot of respect for. And one thing I have always found in my life, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm an average kid from an immigrant grandparent family who has been fortunate to be in this wonderful profession and surrounded by people that are so much better than me. I mean, I, I know who's better. And one th- I have, as my father has always used, surround yourself with the best because it, it's the only way to make yourself better. And I have always done that. When I looked for a partner, I don't want a partner I can control. I want a partner better than me. I don't have that ego. I don't, it doesn't, it's only good for me and my community if the guy working for me is even liked more than than I'm liked, we're a team. We work together. And so if I have good people around me, good consultants, um, the kind of medicine that I can afford you is at the top. You may come to me because you trust me, but when you get there, I may be able to get you to people that are m- much better than me for different things that you can benefit from. And i I've enjoyed that in medicine immensely and I've been very rewarded by that. And a lot of people think, oh yeah, you go see Doc Raniola, he's the best. Doc Raniola's not the best. He's just a he's the he's a people's person who knows how to navigate the system, who wants the best for his patients and his community, and and is fortunate enough to be able to recognize who the real players are. I will tell you that Usually the best people in my profession are the most difficult to get along with. They have difficult personalities. It's funny the way that works, but the most talented surgeons that I have encountered in my life, I don't want to use the word misfit because they'd be offended by it, but they just seem to not fit in that middle ground area that you need to be in in order for society to interact with you in a meaningful way. Yet they have so much to offer and so much talent that if you can just channel that, I mean, it's it's just win-win. But um, there are some very difficult personalities in my profession. One of the things I have been lucky to have is I I can deal with those difficult personalities. I don't mind taking a back seat. I don't mind listening. I don't mind watching the antics. It's sometimes hard for me because they get in trouble sometimes at work because, you know, they say the wrong things and they don't treat people the way they should. I don't think they really mean to do that. I think they really just either haven't been raised properly or maybe it has something to do with the level of intelligence that they have. I'm not certain. But I think for me, recognizing that talent and knowing how to channel that talent for the people around you—that's unfortunately a gift that I've been given.
1: Is there anything that surprised you that you were unaware of in this field that it's not what you thought it would be?
0: No, I—I I don't think there are. There, I don't think there have been any of those type of surprises. I think the biggest surprise for me has been watching and. Being a physician in in the world of medicine that I have lived in up until the recent several years where the changes that stemmed initially from managed care entering the picture uh, to the world of corporate medicine today, those things surprised me. I, I never would have believed that the system could have been as good as it was and offer the the talent and the care it did to undergo the transformation that it has undergone um, and to, in my opinion, um, lower, I shouldn't say standard, because the standard is still probably the highest in the world, but just medicine to me today is, is just not quite at the I'm short for the word. I don't want to. It's not the cutting edge. God, we are at the cutting edge. It's unbelievable what's out there today, from a a tech point of view, from a a support point of view, from a money point of view. But I just, it's just, I don't feel that warmth in the profession, and I also see that a lot of physicians today suffering with burnout. The suicide rate amongst physicians is climbing. We're not really certain why. I have to say it's got to be environmental uh, in terms of etiology, but I don't know. But I just you you could see I'm a bit saddened to see where the system has arrived today in comparison to what I have lived most of my career.
1: What do you think the fix is for that?
0: I think the only fix, really, are the people. It's like anything else. If you don't like your politician, vote him out. The people have a lot more power than they think they have. If the people will continue to accept the change, good or bad, then the change will occur and will be governed by the powers to be. If people say, no, we will not tolerate this, this is not what we want, we'll force a change. The young people, the millennials today, the future is in their hands they are the ones that will be in a position to potentially change the system again to, what I, to a more favorable status as I had initially perceived. I'm hoping that we have some really good young physicians, and I'm hoping that the system is a little better than I see it today.
1: Are there any misconceptions that you'd like to dispel?
0: Well, I think one misconception um, may be that, wow, I'm going to be a doctor and make a lot of money. Doctors did make a lot of money for a long time. Now, you know, a lot of money, it's a very relative thing, you know. But uh, doctors, you know, have been able to generate enough money to live good lives. And if you enter the field today because you think that medicine is going to provide you that avenue to a tremendous amount of wealth, you are very mistaken. It is wealth. It just will not be financial wealth. You'll make a living you'll pay the bills. But if you're really looking about looking to make a lot of money, I don't think medicine is the place to be. So I think that's one of the misconceptions. I think in terms of people wanting to enter the practice of medicine today, but not wanting to be totally committed to 24-7 involvement, I think that's probably... That was a misconception, maybe when I got in, for some of us, but it's certainly not a misconception today. Today, the current system will allow these younger individuals to sort of pick and choose what level of commitment they want to have, and so I think that's that that conception is probably right on today, given the changes. Change is hard for all of us, and so it's unfortunate that you know I don't like the changes that I see. I don't the commitment's not the same. I don't think physicians are treated like they should be. I don't think patients get the kind of health care they deserve to have today. So, yeah, I'm a bit disenfranchised with it. At the same time, I haven't wanted to leave it because if I leave it, then I, I can impart no benefit in the system. At least now, you know, I'm I'm the old surgeon there. I'm the director of surgery now at the hospital, and so... I still have something to say about things. I may not be able to affect things as much as I would like to, but I still have some say. If I just step out and walk away, then that that power diminishes.
1: We may have touched upon this. You may have something more to add. If you could change any aspect of it, what would you change?
0: I wouldn't change a single thing about my life, my career, my profession, The years that I had spent working with the patients at the hospital, I've had an absolutely wonderful career. I wouldn't change a thing. There's nothing I would change at all.
1: And with regards to the medical profession, specifically?
0: Well, I would just roll the clock back about 25 years and and tell you that the medicine we were practicing then is much more dear to my heart than the medicine we're practicing today. Things that were supposed to make medicine better, I think, have detracted. For example, you know, we use the electronic medical record today. So what's an electronic medical record? You know, uh, you come in and instead of me sitting in a room with you, although I still practice the way I want to practice, if you come in and see me in consultation, we will sit and chat. I'll examine you. When I'm done and you walk out the door, I'll go to my room, I'll dictate my consultation. It'll go out to a transcription service. It'll come back, I'll correct it, and it'll be entered as a, as a medical document. Today, medicine's not practiced that way. There's this electronic medical record that forces physicians to enter a lot of data into the computer, which ultimately spits out a document. Um, it's extremely time-consuming. It's very impersonal. Physicians are more worried about typing and entering the data in the electronic medical record than they are looking face-to-face with their patients um, and really trying to understand the needs that they have. It's not that they don't want to. They can't. They're not given enough time to see the patients. The electronic medical record was supposed to be a record generated so that whatever physician picked you up in whatever part of the world, they could access your health care status. And maybe that will help to some extent, but the price that we're paying to get there has been so detrimental to the uh, patient-physician relationship that the consequences are devastating. I don't know how to change that anymore. I I don't know how to make that any better. All my life, some of the most important people at the hospital have been the nurses. I could be home and get a call from a nurse that would say to me, you know, Bob, Mr. Jones in 47, I just can't put my finger on it, but doesn't look right to me. That would just key me off to get in my car, come down, take a look for myself. Sometimes it was nothing. Sometimes it was. I don't have that anymore in the healthcare profession. I have my best nurses at the nursing station in front of computers entering data so that, one, they can't leave their shift until all the data is entered in the computer. And the reason it's so important is because the facility and the corporation can't get paid if the data is not in the record. And then I look down the hallway at the patient rooms, and there are very few healthcare workers in the hallway. And then as you walk down the hallway, you look into the rooms and you do see healthcare people, but they have put their, their technicians and their extenders in the first line. With the patients. So the, the nurses who really were the ones that have a sense of what's going on have been pulled from that arena. And not that the, the techs and the other people that are providing those services are bad people in any way. They're, just, they're not educated at the same levels. And they don't have the ability to really perceive some of the subtle changes with patients that our real nurses have had for years. I find that to be a devastating consequence in, in my profession
1: a real diminishment in care.
0: In my opinion, yes. Now, of course, you have to remember that if you took a video while I was giving you this and you put it on TV, I, the the wrath that I would face, that would come from a different corner, uh, would be something that's probably not even worth fighting anymore for me today. So you need to be very careful about the things that I tell you here because they're again these are this is my perception of the situation. I can tell you they'll have a couple speakers on the other side that'll tell you how much better it's gotten. Really? But it is what it is. And again, it's you're asking me to tell you what I see through my eyes. It's your my, perspective. It's exactly. my perspective. It does not mean that um, others will view it the way I view it.
1: Tell us about your proudest moments and biggest disappointments.
0: I think the proudest moment I've ever had in my life was being able to tell my father that I won the best physician award at the hospital for a particular year. Not for me. It didn't. It doesn't. I don't need that. But for my dad, that was a big thing for him. And I just felt proud to be his son and to be able to give him that. Anybody can be a doctor. Anybody can do what I do. I can teach anybody to do it. I just got to want to do it. It's not hard. It really isn't. Disappointments? None of my children want to be a physician. I find that very disappointing for me personally. I would never impose my will on anyone, certainly not my children either, but I would hope that they would have saw what I was getting back from the patients or from the practice or from the profession that meant so much to me as it did to the patients, that they would want to do the same thing, but they don't. And they drew different conclusions, and my kids will all be successful in what they do, but unfortunately, they will never get to reap that feeling that I get very often um, when I'm working. Maybe a little less so today than 10 years ago, but um, the feedback's been tremendous.
1: What advice would you give someone who is considering a career in medicine?
0: Uh, this is my best advice. If you're considering a career and, and that's what you want to do, you should definitely do it. There are a lot of things out there that aren't, I don't think are wonderful in my profession, but I will tell you that being a physician and the physician-patient relationship is something that it, you can't replace that with anything else. And I would urge you to come to the profession, give what you have, take what it has to offer you, and make the meaningful changes uh, that need to be made uh, in the not so distant future.
1: Is there anything we haven't covered here that you think is important for anyone considering a similar path to know?
0: I would tell you that in life you have to follow your heart as much as you follow your brain, or maybe vice versa. But if you follow your heart and you let your brain guide you a little, You will find yourself in a place that will allow you to feel good about yourself and to move forward in life. Follow your heart. That's the best advice I can give you.
1: Wonderful. It's been such a pleasure to sit down with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.